Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet, where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine to become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome. On today's show, our guest is Frank DeMarco. He was the co-founder and chief editor for 16 years of Hampton Roads Publishing. He is the author of several non-fiction books based on a personal experience examining aspects of non-physical reality. These are The Sphere and the Hologram, Rita's World, Volume 1 and 2, Connecting the Cosmic Internet, and his forthcoming Awakening from the 3D World, and how we enter the next life. He conducts occasional workshops at the Monroe Institute on connecting with guidance. His website is iofmyownknowledge.com. Hello and welcome to the show, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Tell us about how you got into Hampton Roads Publishing. Um, you want the long version or the short version? I love the long version. Okay. Um, Shirley McLean, back in 1987, did a series of Higher Self seminars here in the States. And her first one was in Virginia Beach. For uh, various reasons, I went to see it. And the following week, I wrote another article about it. She did everything she said she would. Well, Bob Friedman was also in the audience, and we didn't know each other at the time. And we started having lunch together uh, once a month or so. And a couple of years later, he needed to find a partner to start another company. And I needed to go away from the newspaper, so we did it. Long story. Were you involved with newspapers before this happened? My first job out of college, really, I was a reporter for a while. And then I bounced around doing this and that. And I was uh, I worked for the Virginian Pilot from 1986 until 1990. And, and during that, what did you learn? I learned that writing editorials was much more congenial to me than com- programming computers, which is what I had been doing before that. <laughs> wow, you're a programmer as well. Wow. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, as I said, I bounced around a few things. Okay. I was a programmer for about six years. Uh, I had to. I had a previous business, and it, was, it went broke, so I had to find a way to support my family. I got OJT on, on uh, programming, and I enjoyed it for a while. And um, when you met Bob, what was running through your heads? Well, he and I both sort of thought the same way about metaphysics, especially. He had read Seth in the 1970s, and that uh, sort of set him on that path. And he had been involved with that ever since then. Um, I had read Edgar Casey and, and uh, had a little bit of Seth, not much, but I was in that same wavelength. If you remember Linda Goodman, she was an astrologer who sold maybe 80 million copies of her various books here in the States, and she had an 1,100-page poem, a free verse poem that she wanted to publish, and her publishers wouldn't publish it for her. But Bob met her at a party, and he said, I'll publish it, and then had to find somebody with a little bit of money to start a new company to do it with. And I had just sold a house that I had, my first house I ever owned. So I had a little bit of money, and boy, I was I was risking everything I ever had. But I said, yeah, let's do it. So we started Hampton Roads on a shoestring. But that, that book got us off to a fine start. And was Hampton Roads like a metaphysical publishing company? Bob and I basically were publishing whatever we liked. And as it happened, we liked metaphysics, but we also liked things that were sort of on the edge. They were neither exactly metaphysics nor religion. Anyway, we, we liked doing things that were a little of this, a little of that. 
And because our stuff didn't fit into the conventional publishing niches, that was accidentally brilliant because it meant we had no competition for a while. Then after a while, the mainstream caught up with that and then, then it got harder. Why do you think that was accidentally brilliantly? Well, because we were doing it because that's what we were interested in. We, we didn't think of it strategically to realize that we wouldn't have any competition. So it was brilliant, but it was accidentally brilliant. And through the 16 years of working that, is there anyone that stands out in your mind that you, you, you like to go back and read again uh, as a publisher? Well, gosh, <laughs> there were, were an awful lot of people that I published that I really like a lot. Uh, I don't even want to go that way because there's too many. <laughs> How did the, the non-physical exploration happen? I went to the Monroe Institute back in 1992 and did a, one of their residential programs called Gateway. And that opened up a lot of things for me. And one of the things that it opened up was realizing everybody probably is, well, I'll take away the probably, everybody is psychic. It's just a matter of opening up your access to it. So I began, I had been carrying, I've been keeping a journal since I was about 20 years old. So I started trying to do automatic writing. And that didn't work because I didn't know what I was doing. Monroe gave me the right way to go about it, and, and the right way was not to leave my mind blank and hope that something would take over the pen and let it write, but to engage my own mind with it and uh, realize, at least it took me a while, but I finally realized things that were coming in weren't necessarily different. They didn't come with bells and whistles and archangel signatures, you know. Uh, oftentimes, they just felt like I was making it up myself, and I spent many years worried about that. Well, you know, Was I making this up? Was I fooling myself? Finally, I realized that's really one of the useless questions that you might ask. It'll tie you in knots. Uh, am I making this up? Is this really who it says it is? Is the information true? Can I prove it? Those are all very beguiling questions, but uh, really, ultimately, you can't ever answer them. The only thing you can really answer are the two questions. One, does this material resonate with me at the moment? Now, maybe five minutes from now, it won't. But if it does, then you should be listening to it. And two, is there anything I can do with this information? I found there are much more reliable guides to this than just uh, trying to you know, prove to myself that the person on the other end of the psychic line knew something that I know now and nobody else ever would know, you know. You can't really do that, at least I can't. Were you trying to prove that to yourself that time? Oh yes, I spent, I spent years and years because it was very important to me that I was not fooling myself. I didn't care to be an accidental fraud, let's put it that way. It certainly wasn't gonna be a deliberate fraud, but I didn't wanna accidentally mislead myself and then others. Entering the Monroe Institute and kind of understanding that everyone is psychic and you're psychic, how did you, were you able to feel better in your exploration? I think there's a tendency to think, well, those abilities may exist, but you have to be somebody special. Wouldn't it be lovely if I were one of those? But of course, I'm probably not. And you know, when you start off reading Seth or, or Edgar Cayce, you know you're not that level, so it's a, it's a big temptation to think there are special people and there are the rest of us. But ultimately, I came to think, well, it's more like playing the piano, you know. You may not play like Paderewski, but you can probably at least play chopsticks. And then it's a matter of how much time and effort you want to put into it. Were you the chopstick player or the piano player? <laughs> oh, I certainly was. <laughs> I tell people, if there's, a bad, if there's a wrong way to go about this that I didn't try, I can't imagine what it is. But, but in a way, that's good, you know, because then you, then you know. I'm not going to say I'm particularly talented, but I am going to say that it seems to suit my disposition. Um, some people, you know, are natural healers. 
some people have this or that talent. This one seems to be mine to to go to the other side to talk to other voices and put it out in a dialogue. Usually, it's in a dialogue in my case that is comprehensible. Okay, that is that is non-inflated. That's important to me. Previously, did you have any experiences as a child talking to people on the other side? Not that I remember. So going to the Moreau Institute and, and seeing and understanding and talking to people on the other side, was that kind of an opening for you then? The whole general attitude of the Institute was an opening for me because it's very much oriented toward, here we are, here are these things you can do. There are these unusual states of mind that we can get you into using our techniques, electronic techniques. And then once you're used to them, then you recognize you can go back to them at will. That was tremendously freeing for me. I wouldn't have been likely to go to a place that said, here's the dogma and we're going to tell you what it is and you have to sign off on it. You know, that, that doesn't appeal to me. They said, here, we'll get you into this state and I'll go explore, see what you find. That, that, I like that. After all these years, every so often I still do a program. How did it feel the first time getting the keys to, uh, to go outside? Getting the keys to the kingdom, you mean? Yeah. Mm. Monroe's uh, reputation is all about out-of-body experiences originally because that's what Bob Monroe was famous for. But... I never really had a whole lot of interest in that. I've done it a couple of times, but that's nothing all that special. A lot of people do that. I mean, a lot. most people probably do it at night when they don't even know they're doing it. I think out of body is a, I think it's a lure to people because they feel like if they can go out of body, then they'll know that they're more than their physical body. But I feel like I already know that, so what's the point? So after your first experience with the Monroe Institute, what happened after that? Life happened after that. I mean, I, this just became a part of my ordinary life. Now, maybe years go by, or well, probably not. Months, anyway, might go by, and I wouldn't be talking to the other side, as I used to call it. But then there would, might come a time when I would do it every day for, you know, four or five months. In fact, uh, my latest book, well, the book that's coming out in, in September, came in about maybe about five weeks' time every night. I'd wake up about three o'clock or four o'clock, it wouldn't matter when, and I could get up and I would write. And then, I would, then would come the child, the, the difficulty would be uh, really just transcribing it because it's a lot of physical labor, you know. We wound up with a book that I'm calling Awakening from the 3D World, which describes what it's like to die and come into our new possibilities from the point of view of the other side, rather than from our point of view. That's just an example of, of the way this comes through. There were a couple of others as well where a friend of mine who had been dead for a few years came to me in a dream in December of 2014 and she said, okay, let's get some work, let's do some work. So for the next six months, almost every day, she began giving me transcriptions and telling me about this and that aspect of life on the other side as it looks from there because she and I had spent time before trying to see what it looked like from here. Did you go through an uh, exploration of someone asking you questions in this stage to, to get the answers at the beginning? Well, the first way we did it was I would ask the questions and then I would sort of shift gears. You, you know, first you're in a attentive stage or a very, very focused state to ask the question. Then uh, you have to turn into a more, let's see, we can't call it contemplative exactly, but it's a sort of a receptive phase where you're still, your, your focus is still there but you're receptive and waiting for something to come. And then what happens is the words come in very much like the way they do when you're speaking to somebody. Like you and I are speaking now, you don't have a speech prepared. What happens is you start talking and more words keep welling up. You know, that's that's really very much the way the process is. 
And I think that's one reason why more people do this than realize do it, because when that happens, they assume, well, this is just me. It doesn't feel differently, you see. Yeah, it's a matter of learning to, to distinguish. Did that answer your question? It, it does. And it must be hard to, at that time, to transfer from your human brain to your, your spiritual brain in answering these questions. That's a false distinction, really. You are living here in 3D. But there's another part of yourself that's living beyond 3D, and you have access to it. That's what your mind is, really. Our minds really are not in the 3D world. They're in the non-3D world. Our brains are here in the 3D world, and so they have to follow 3D rules. But our minds don't. And if you think about it, if you remember last Tuesday, or you imagine forward to maybe what next Tuesday looks like, you can do that in your brain, in your mind. You can't do it in your body, okay? In your body, you can't go into the past or the future. The mind doesn't have any trouble doing it because it's not here you're operating under our rules so since you're intrinsically connected to it when you're doing this kind of work it's really a mistake to say well there's my human side and my spiritual side it's that's it's sort of true but it, the distinction is maybe a little too firm wow i wouldn't have realized that the brain can can do that you think it's um, an autopilot no the brain can't do it the mind there's a big difference it's like the mind is the software and the brain is the hardware it's running on. Tell us about how Rita came into your work, into your life. Rita was, uh, for many years, a professor of psychology. She was a professor of criminal justice, in fact, up in New York. She did one of Bob Monroe's first gateways, and it blew her away. She was already in her 60s by that time, and she sort of thought she knew herself. And suddenly she realized there was almost more to learn. So she took early retirement, came down here, and she ran Bob's consciousness lab for the first four years as a volunteer, sort of a post-retirement job. That was uh, from 1980 to 84, and then she re-retired. And I didn't meet her for another 16 years. But in the year 2000, well, actually in the year 1998, she and I met because we were in the hospital be, uh, visiting another friend. But in the year 2000, she and I began a series of, well, what should we call them, interactions anyway. Rita, now with all this experience, is watching me in the laboratory talking to whoever it was on the other side. At the time, I was thinking it was somebody different, you know, different spirits, and getting information. And she had all this information to compare it with. So the following year, she and I began meeting every Tuesday night, and she had all this long list of questions that she had wondered about and used to ask people about when they were in altered states, but they couldn't give her good answers. You know, what's the other side like? You know, and what do we do after we die? And things like that. And all that she could get were cliches and generalization. Things like, well, it's hard to describe. There's no problems here. You'll know when you get here. You know, things that weren't really useful to her. And for some reason, I could answer her questions. I could go into an altered state and just the answers would flow. And of course, I didn't know whether they were true or not. I, all I knew was they were coming to me. So we did that for, let's see, we started in August of 2001 and we went on to the following spring every week, which is a lot of material. Eventually, I published that material as The Spear and the Hologram. I just published it as a series of transcripts. But then Rita died in 2008. She was 88 by that time, and she was well ready to go. Um, about, as I say, about six years later, she came to me in a dream and said, okay, let's get to work. <laughs> so so in, in that time, then she began answering the same questions from the other side that she used to have on this side, sort of comparing notes and it helped because she and I had this long working relationship and we had an affectionate relationship as well. She was like another mother, really. That and the other shared background that we had all made it really 
an easy exchange of information. So I could get up and I'd say, okay, Rita, I'm ready if you are. And, and she'd start off with something. They often came out like lectures, like she had prepared material. And other times they were just interchanges. Wow, that must have been a lot of uh, very interesting to work both on the physical side and the metaphysical side. Yes, yeah, well, it was. And it's funny because, you know, again, you can never prove that you're not making it up and you can drive yourself crazy if you worry about it too much. The material that she would bring forth had her, uh, her personality, you know, her, the feel of, of Rita. Uh, often some of the same, um, well, we shared the same kind of jokes or, or whatever, you know. It was, on the one hand, very familiar, and on the other hand, the material was very unfamiliar. It's a nice mix. When she was alive and when she was working with you in spirit form, were, was the answers and work very similar? Yes, I would say so. They were. It was like looking at the same thing from the flip side. How did that feel to get the acknowledgement that she, your answers and her answers were quite similar? <laughs> well, it felt good, but of course, you know, as I say, you never can to yourself or anybody else mm. that what you have was real so it didn't it isn't like that it functioned as it isn't like it functioned as proof of any kind but it was a consistent message and it's a message that rings true to me and i don't know how to go beyond that really what was the message well the message basically is that there isn't uh, two worlds although we talk that way there's one world and our world that we live in that you live in has more dimensions than the ones we recognize those other dimensions are the other world. So the other world isn't somewhere there, and it isn't something different. It's, it's other aspects of this same world that are freed from the limitations that we have here just in three dimensions. So, uh, you know, in three, the 3D part of us can only ride this surfboard of the present moment, you know. So it's no longer 15 minutes ago, and it isn't yet 15 minutes from now. We're stuck right here on this one moment and we can't move around. But it, it seems that uh, that in the dimensions beyond these, that's not so. That you can move around to different moments of time the way you and I move around different places in space. So if you go from Ireland to Norway, leaving Ireland doesn't cease to exist. And going to Norway, Norway doesn't only come into existence when you get there, which is the way our time feels like to us, past, present, and future. But it's apparently past, present, and future, and not just one of them, but all conceivable ones, they all exist. Then that's how they live. And of course, we have to take that on faith until we drop the body with its limitations. I, I'm not sure anymore if any of this makes sense to you, because I've lived with it for so long, I forget what people do or don't know. Yeah, it's like you're living in the bubble and you don't want the bubbles like outside. After Risha's volume one and two, are they kind of the concepts that we identify today, like time, dimension, and so on. Yes, that's a part of it. Hard to say now. now you know, it's, it's funny. Those books are only two years old, but already experientially, they're, <laughs> they're so far from me. I've done so many things since then. It's hard to remember exactly what's, what's in them. And do you think all the big concepts that we read in spiritual books, they're kind of, I wouldn't say dumbed down, but if you look on the other side, they exist in there, but in our field, no. Is that right, do you think? Well, I don't know, Aaron. I think so much is... is when we bring information in on the other side, it's mixed with what we are. There's no really way to, to avoid that, I don't think. If you and I were talking to the very same individual on the other side about the very same topic, chances are you and I would get different information. I don't mean it would necessarily be contradictory, but the flavor would be different and some of the nuances would. And there could easily be that you're mixing in some stuff of yours 
where I'm mixing in some stuff of mine without knowing it. Because it's, as you know, if you've tried it, it's a little bit slippery. So I'm not really interested in critiquing somebody else's information. What I would critique would be that people might be a little too certain that theirs is the only way of seeing things. I think that's a, a pitfall that we fall into fairly easily. Of course, that means mine is the only way to work. You understand? <laughs> <laughs> I get you, yes. Um, tell us about how uh, the, the Cosmic Internet came about. Well, the Cosmic Internet came in much the same process. Uh, I would be awake and I would say, okay, does anybody want to talk to me? And, and this, I think it actually, it has the feel of having been planned on the other side the way readers were, because it's only five big chapters, although it's a lot more sessions than that. It, it's like they had the idea, we can give it to you in a nutshell. And here's what you need to do, and that's the first couple of chapters. And then after that, it's here's what you need to do to work on yourself to that'll be the most useful to you. And that's the rest of the book. That isn't my plan. The most I did was to look at it and see the structure after the fact. So it looked to me like somebody on the other side had a project, and they said, oh, here's Frank. He's not doing anything. Let's use him. That must be like, you know, I'm writing this book, but uh, someone else is doing all the, the groundwork for me. Does it feel like that? No, 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 just the opposite. I'm doing the grunt work. They're doing the concepts and the inspiration work. They're, they're doing the easy part. They're not sitting there transcribing. <laughs> Let me say a little more about that. When you bring in something from the other side, who you are and what you are and what you know and what you have done and what your emotions are, are all an integral part of that message. If they pick me, they're picking my limitations as well as my possibilities. If they pick somebody else, it's the same thing. So, for instance... I'm very strong in history and biography, but if they were to come in with something scientific, they would come in to someone else because it's, or mathematics, you know, it's not a language that I know. They would have to spend more time explaining the language than they could get a message across with. So our limitations are the same as our, they're the flip side of our talents, let's put it that way. Let's just say someone on the other side picks you for a, a book to, to pick. Do you know who they are and what they are, or is it just energy to you? Usually, they, I just lump them as the guys upstairs. But some I have become so familiar with that I know. Like, if Carl Jung comes through, he has an energy like nobody else's. First time he came through, it was unbelievable. It was like somebody had put a cloak over me of, of lead. Not that it was emotionally heavy, but it was just the seriousness and the gravitas of the man, you see. Mm. So I would recognize him. I would recognize Hemingway. I would recognize Rita, uh, and there are a few more. But mostly, I don't, as I say, pay a lot of attention to that. Uh, just the, the proof of the pudding here is in the information. It's not in who claims to be giving me the usually. It must be an exciting time to sit down and have like a one-on-one -on -one with Hemingway or Carl Jung. Do you think that? They warned me many years ago against what they called something like spiritual autograph hunting. <laughs> you know, as you, know, you don't go looking for a celebrity to talk to for the sake of saying, I just talked to a celebrity. But if you have a, a purpose that's serious to you, if you have a real reason, I think probably pretty nearly anybody is accessible to us as long as we're fairly compatible with them. I don't think I would have a good deal of luck talking to Hitler or Stalin, say, but um, with Abraham Lincoln, it's another story, you know. Abraham Lincoln was a, a he was probably my first hero ever. When I was a child, I read a book about him when I was about 13, and my admiration for him has never dimmed. In fact, it gets larger the more I think of him. Uh, America doesn't necessarily have a lot of saints, but if we do have any, he's one.
Yeah. Why did I get it then? Reincarnation. Um, do we come back, or do they tell you anything about this? Well, actually, yes, they've talked to me quite a bit about that, and that's both in the Spirit Hologram and in the Reader's World book, so I should have mentioned it, actually. As with so many things, our ideas about reincarnation are mixed up because our ideas about ourselves are mixed up. We tend to think of ourselves as if we were an individual. You know, I'm Frank DeMarco, I'm in one body, clearly I'm just one person, I'm an individual, right? Except it's not really true. What I am is a personality that's holding together all of these strands, and you might call each of the strands past lives, say. So what I am is this temporarily held together mind, which when I drop the body, the mind will continue to exist because it is in the non-physical, and it'll continue to function. But if that mind is used to put somebody else onto the earth, if it's used as a template, say, you can't really say it's a reincarnation of Frank DeMarco. What it would be is he's one thread in a new soul, you see. Our time has forgotten the difference between soul and spirit. And, and spirit, as the scriptures always used to say, spirit goes where it wants to. It bloweth where it lists. In other words, you can't confine spirit and you can't give it form. It animates form. But a soul can be created, when, when the parents create the body, they create the conditions for the soul to, to grow during the course of that lifetime. The soul isn't going to come back again. The spirit may reanimate, and there's nothing to be said about that. So that's a long-winded way of saying reincarnation is making the mistake in thinking there's one unit, which is going to then come back into the earth as one unit, which is going to come back as one unit, which is going to come back as one unit. I don't think that's the way it is. I think it's uh, one unit which has been formed, and may go into the forming of another unit, but it's not like it's the same thing straight through, usually. But I, I have to put the usually in there because when you think of people of a certain level like the Dalai Lama, it appears that that is a unit that holds together and then comes in again with a new chosen vessel. I don't know that firsthand, so I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. Do you think that the parents are identifying the rules with the spirit and the child during the birth pregnancy uh, cycle? I don't know. I have no idea. I saw you talk about time. How does that associate in the other world? You know, people somewhat glibly say on the other side there is no time. But of course that can't be true because if there were no time, there could be no change over time. You can clearly see that that happens on the other side as well as on this side. The guys have said this, and I'm having to take their word for it. They've said, we experience three dimensions of space plus a dimension of time. And the dimension of time that we experience includes all the other dimensions that we can't recognize separately. So when you do begin to recognize another dimension, if you have a degree of growth or awakening, your experience of time will change because it won't include all that anymore. In other words, if you used to know 3D plus time, and suddenly you come to the fourth dimension, let's, let's call it that, then your experience of time will change because it'll no longer include that fourth. That makes sense to you? Mm -hmm. I can do it again if, you, if it doesn't. I mean, because it's a, a new sort of concept. The scientists think we have 12 dimensions or maybe six or whatever. They don't know. And I suspect that dimension itself is an analogy. I don't think it's quite as clear cut as that. But again, I don't speak science, so I have no way to really talk about it. Yeah. What the guys said, though, is that time changes as we become more aware. The reason why it changes is because we're seeing more clearly. Fewer things are being lumped into our experience of time. And have they said to you anything about like the fifth dimension and the golden age time or anything like that? Nothing about the golden age, but what people are calling the fifth dimension or what some people call ascension, I believe is the same thing that I'm talking about, but in different words. 
it is when your consciousness clears more, when you become more aware of who you are and how the world is, then it's as if you're living in a different world, but in a real sense, you are living in a different world because your perception of it is different. Now, what other people experience in the fifth dimension and all that, I don't know, this, but this is, this is what I know. And with the dimensions altering from the third to the fifth, is our mind and body also altering with that as well, do you think? It's the other way around. It's when your mind alters that you become differently aware of those other dimensions. You see, that's the, the change in yourself is the cause, not the effect. Well, I mean, as far as I know, I don't think we're going to be dragged into a new world. I think we might climb into it ourselves by our own efforts and our own, maybe by luck, who knows. With all the, the changes that are happening in the world, do you think that's helping us understand who we are as a, a, a consciously aware in the world today? My guess is it's both ways. Some people are gaining from it and other people are being more, they're being frightened by it and the rigidity is not going to help any. But that's that's just observation, you know, and I, I, I can't claim any... Uh, particular knowledge of it. Like at night time when a, in a, during your work, do you kind of get frightened of the knowledge they give you and the volume of knowledge you get? No, why would I? Oh. That would never occur to me. Why might I be frightened by it? If you're writing a book and just the sheer knowledge that, that may come to you at night time, that's more the, the... I'm more talking about if channeling the information. That's I'm probably questioning about. <laughs> in, my in my experience, my ignorance is way over more than my knowledge across the street. <laughs> <laughs> in your new book, Awakening... Awakening from the 3D. Yeah, Awakening from the 3D. What have you learned from that book? Well, it's been a very, very interesting precee of, I think many people, most people probably, are afraid of dying, and very few people have a clear view of the afterlife, and this is trying to give us what actually happens. So, as you die, of course, you lose connection with your senses, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, by definition. Well, if you're the kind of person who has always been extra, uh, we'll say extroverted, but if the person who's always gotten their information from the senses, you're going to be up the creek, aren't you? Because all of a sudden you're going to be in the dark. But if you're the kind of person who's been more intuitive and who's had a good connection with the other side, you're going to at least have that because that'll be familiar. And what will happen over time, and, and as they've explained it to me, you can see all the information that I've gotten, you can find it in other places. I mean, obviously, uh, anybody who has done serious spiritual work has dealt with these questions. You lose connection with the, with the senses, and so therefore there's some confusion going on. One of the things that happens is you go back over your mind and your memories, you know, and then you run through things again and again and again. You know, this happened and that happened and the other thing. And maybe you're guilty about some things and maybe you're sad about some things and maybe you're puzzled. There comes a time when you begin to see it not only from your point of view, but from the point of view of the others with whom you interacted and also from a third party kind of view that shows you what it looked like objectively. And so you, you process all that. And, and all of these stages are different for people depending on what they did in their lifetimes. But at some point you become aware that in fact you are connected to another part of yourself that was not confined to three dimensions. And that's what I call guidance. And that is a good guide in the non-physical. They have a great analogy for the process of surrendering the old way of doing things and, and awakening to the new one. They say it's like a child on a sliding board. You know, children love sliding boards because it gives them the sense of being, we free out of control sliding. 
and at the same time they know it's safe. But sometimes a child grabs the sides of the sliding board because they want it to stop and they're afraid to slide, you know? And they, they said, well, that's more or less the same thing that happens with us. Sometimes we're sliding down the board and going into what's ever new with a great sense of adventure. And sometimes we're grabbing the side of the board and wait, wait, I'm not sure I want to do this. <laughs> but sooner or later, you're going to get to the bottom. Whether it's my own mind doing it or whether it's them on the other side picking me for that reason, they have a wonderful down-to-earth, non-inflated language. And, and they use analogies like that, very homely analogy. Everybody knows what a sliding board is and everybody knows what it's like to be on a sliding board. What did you learn from other books? Was it the same concept you just explained or was it other concepts that the other three books provided to you um, in finishing writing them? Well, you know, the funny thing is, I don't know if you've written a book, but if you have, you know, when you write the book and get it published, it sort of goes away from you. It's harder to remember what you have actually written because you've moved on to other things. Years ago, I was interviewed on the radio for my first book, and I started to tell a story, and the woman who was interviewing me said, no, that's not the way it's, it was. It was blah, 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 blah. I said, okay. So I tried to tell a second story, and she said that wasn't what it was like either. And so she knew the book by this time better than I did. I told her I'd have to read that book someday. <laughs> but the same thing happening here, you know, I lived it, I expressed it in my journals, I used the transcriptions of those to write the book as best I could, but then, you know, some of these things are years ago, like The Spirit and the Hologram happened in 2001 and 2002, published it in 2008, so what's that, that's already almost 10 years. From my point of view, it's a long, long way in the past, hard to remember. When you have something like this and it transforms your life, you then move on and that's assumed. And it can be hard to remember when it wasn't taken for granted, you know? So when you ask me, how did this change? I, I have a hard time answering because it changed me at the time. And so now I can, it's hard to remember when I didn't think this way. I remember that I didn't, but it's hard to remember when it was and how I used to think. When you were doing the questioning with Risa and how did it impact you at the time? Well, it was a very pleasant experience more than anything else. I, I liked the information. I could see that she had it in mind for me to get another book, and she was doing the research work for me, which was nice. But it wasn't uh, traumatic or anything, if that's what you're uh, wondering. It was just, it was really, as much as anything, it was fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. I, some people would hate the idea of getting up at three in the morning, but I don't. And, and I enjoyed the whole process. And doing this process over years, is it become second nature into your routine? Yes, it really has. Uh, once I got past expecting bells and whistles and the Archangel Michael to come down with a, with a pen saying, here, take this. Once I got past all that and realized that it's just a human ability, that took all the pressure off in a way, you know? And so it's, to me now it's something that happens sometimes and doesn't happen other times and doesn't matter whether it's here or not, it'll be back, maybe. It sounds pretty blasé, doesn't it? But I mean, it's, it does, yeah. it's, it's, it's a part of life. Frank, who inspires you in what you do? Many people. I think the gold standard of inspiration has to be Seth. Uh, Jane Roberts, you know, brought in the Seth books back in the 70s. I think they have never been surpassed. Dion Fortune, who was an English woman, uh, she wrote six wonderful novels as well as many, many nonfiction books. She created the Society of the Inner Light. She was a member of the Golden Dawn and split off from it. Uh, and of course, there was Edgar Casey as an example. I guess, in general, people who explore. I like people who go away from what they know and they take a chance to see if they can learn something new. Uh, that means you're going to make some mistakes, but so what? Is that because that's your nature as well, is to explore? 
I expect so. So you're being magnetized to the people that are very similar in your characteristics. I, I think so. I think um, that would be true of any of us, you know. If you have a very scientific bent, chances are you would gravitate toward people of that same bent because it would be it'd be the, the path of least resistance. You're the same way. I don't know what your natural bent is, but if you were to start talking to people on the other side, you would most easily go to the ones who you had either something in common with or you were interested in the information they knew. There would be some resonance. That's how you get to them in the first place. And and Frank, if you, let's just say tomorrow, you, you go to the other side, who would you like to meet? When you go to the other side, of course, well, among those you discover are the people who have been your guides during this life. Some of them were relatives. I'd like to meet my grandfather, for instance, who died before I was born. Uh, I've talked to him a couple of times. He was, uh, among other things, an artist, and he wanted to be a professional artist. And I would very much like to talk to him. I talked to my father too after all this time. But beyond your relatives, there are your heroes. There are anybody who had equal interest in something you're interested in that you might want to know things about. You know, I can't give you a more specific answer than well. I'm probably actually being a little bit reticent. I'm not going to give you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, and. And Frank, when we pass away, is it the way to describe it, like you went to the, the party gates and you get this review of your life and then you get to go on vacation, is that how, what they mentioned to you? Well, you know, it's funny, uh, a week ago, no, two weeks ago, I just did a program at the Monroe Institute. It was a week-long a seminar in near-death experiences. And the man who ran it, uh, Scott Taylor, is a PhD, he got his dissertation, he did his dissertation on near-death experiences. Among the things he did was he ran through a whole list of things people have experienced. And he said, nobody experiences all of them. And people don't necessarily experience them all in the same order. But chances are you will experience these things. And he sent us out to experience some of those things piece by piece. For instance, one aspect is always there is a barrier. And when you cross it, you can't come back. You know, for some people it's a river. For some people it's a gate. For some people it might be anything, you know, but... The, the concept is, beyond this point, you can't come back to Earth in this lifetime. All right, so that's one. Edgar Casey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean Edgar Casey. I meant George Ritchie, who had one of the first recorded near-death experiences in the United States. He experienced it as Jesus leading him across, and did not lead him across that river because he did come back. But he experienced Jesus guiding him, showing him this, that, and the other. A Muslim would, would maybe see the Prophet Muhammad. A lot of it is, for all we know, our own mind interpreting what we saw. But yes, I would say the things that people have reported experiencing, I would say anybody who comes back makes as honest a report as they can. But what you have to bear in mind is that report is going to go through their own system of symbols and metaphors. So for instance, on the other side, time is not what it is here. You may see all of your life in one in, in, at the same time, when they come back, they often say, well, I saw my whole life, I don't understand it because it doesn't fit in how was there time enough? And the reason is, in the non-3D, there are different rules, you know, different rules of existence. So when they come back, they're trying to cram into a 3D description what happened outside of 3D. So there's a lot of confusion that can come forth that way. But yeah, what, what people have reported is a good indicator as long as the as you don't get too specific, as long as you don't think... The metaphors that may be a part of their life are necessarily exactly the way it is. Does that make sense? It does. And the outer body experiences, if we 
interpret so much information? Is that how confusion happens? If you experience something in a realm with different physical rules of existence, and you come back and you're back in a brain and in, a, in an experience set that experiences only linear time, blah, 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 it's almost overwhelmingly necessary for you to reinterpret what happened to you inside this, because this is the only way we make sense of things. And yet that reinterpretation is itself unavoidable distortion. Just, it really just can't be helped. Do you think we're living in like the Matrix or a video game? <laughs> Beats me, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, you might get some clearance from upstairs and tell us what, what happens. No, they'd probably uh, say, no, it's not your, not, your, not your deal. Even though they're providing information, they're only selecting what information to tell you. No, to be serious, the information that I can get is probably is different from the information you could get. Mm. Just because I'm different. There wouldn't be something I would resonate to, so it would probably be harder for me. If there were a real reason, maybe. But you know, Aaron, why don't you do it? And, and why doesn't anybody who's listening to this do it? it? It is a human ability. The last thing I would want is for somebody to say, Wow, Frank's really special. I wish I had that gift. Because, in fact, you do have the gift. You have the access. Let's put it that way. Not everybody wants to write books. Not everybody wants to keep a journal. But everybody who needs the access can know it is there when you need it, if you need it. It's a matter of being open to it. It's a matter of not tying yourself into knots. But it's there. And here's the thing. It's easier done than said. Not the other way around. It's easier done than said. Um, people say, well, you know, that's easy to say. Well, no. <laughs> it's easy to do. But the problem is, when you're doing it, you're going to be sitting there going, well, I'm probably just making this up because it sounds like me. Well, yeah, it does sound like you. Take it down, put it away, look at it a couple of days from now, and you might be surprised. You might say, wow, you know, at the time, that just seemed like I was making it up, but where did this information come from? That's very common. How can someone access this information? Is it meditation or reading or what? Well, I'm going to tell you, but it's not going to sound like I said anything. Intent. Intent. You sit there quietly and have the question in your mind and then pay attention to whatever comes to you. And sometimes, you know, and in this fact, often you'll ask the question and the answer will be forming before you finish with the question. When that happens, don't say that's proof that I just made it up. No, it's proof that somebody was on the other end of the line and they answered your question. Now, that doesn't mean the answer's right. It doesn't mean anything. But it does mean it was there for you, and now you, now you have to look at it and decide. Let me, let me say another word about that. On this whole deal of talking to the other side, there are two steps. There is perception, and there is analysis. As soon as you begin to analyze, you've stopped perceiving. As soon as you start perceiving again, you cannot keep analyzing. There's nothing wrong with doing one and then doing the other and then doing one and doing the other. It depends on what's ever comfortable for you, but you cannot do both at the same time. So you get a sudden image of a flower. Well, okay, you're getting the image of the flower, you're perceiving. Then you say, I wonder what that flower's all about. Boom, you're out of perceiving at that point. You may think you're still perceiving, but you're not. You're going into, I wonder what that flower's all about, which is analysis. As soon as you stop that, then you can go back to perceiving. But you won't do any more perceiving until you stop analyzing. And if people knew that, they would they would know the process really is easier than they think. It's just process has a couple of ground rules, and, and if you don't follow them, you can't get anywhere. Well, to you. Does that sound like you could do it? Oh, yeah. It's simple enough. It's, it's to the phrase, okay. too many minds prevents you from doing what you need to achieve. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It's a matter of concentration and intent. And then beyond that, I don't think there is any magic bullet. 
Frank, if there was one piece of knowledge or experience that you could give someone on the street that you've learned throughout everything you've done, experienced, what would it be? I think I would say that anything you have ever read about that strikes you as something that is desirable as an, as an attribute or as a, an ability, go after it if you wish, because it is a human ability. It's not something that there are a few people who are special and the rest of us who are just extras in the movie, okay? You may not become Paderewski, but maybe you don't have to become Paderewski. Maybe becoming an amateur pianist is something that is satisfying in itself. And maybe you never get beyond chopsticks. And maybe you take a couple of piano lessons and then you quit. But the point is, these are human abilities. Nobody should say to themselves, that's beyond me. That's more than I could ever do. You don't know until you try. Wow. Frank, I want to say thank you very much for coming on to the show and sharing your experiences, journey, and story. Well, it's been a pleasure. I'm not sure anybody got anything out of it, but I hope so. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.